1: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Ideas Digest, the podcast where we pause our endless judgment and categorization of other people just long enough yeah. to look through the window of someone else's perspective to find, oh, oh what's that? Oh, look, they're human too, yeah. just like me. Yeah. Uh, my name's Conrad. I'm Cam. And mm-hmm. today, we've we've followed a bit of a rabbit hole recommended by some of our listeners yeah. and well, obviously, good friends of the show. And we ended yeah. up at the doorstep of a man named Brad Jerzak. Brad, thanks for talking to us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's yeah. it's good to have you here. Now, I'm sensing a bit of an accent there, and it's 50-50 for an Australian's ear to try and pick that up. I'm going to go with, are you Canadian? Canadian, for sure. That's right. I live near Vancouver in Canada. Oh, yeah, cool. what, what a great land. I feel like they're the, the, the brothers and sisters of Australians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And just to give some listeners a bit of a background,
0: what is it that you do? Um, Right now, I'm the Dean of Theology and Culture at a little university in Canada called St. Stephen's. And I'm also um, uh, one of the core faculty with the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice. So if you have uh, listeners who'd like to join up for a one-year certificate, uh, undergrad or grad-level certificate in Christian Peace Studies, um, You just go to IRPJ.org, and, and um, you can you can take uh, six courses with us for a one-year certificate that transfers oh. into into uh, grad studies, like MA, MDiv, all of that. Oh. So I do that, and I'm an author. I used to be a pastor for 20 years, but oh. I'm happily not doing that now. I'm, <laughs> all- <laughs> I'm more in the academic world now, but also still have my toe heavily into 12-step recovery and Uh, folks in that realm so i love
1: that stuff i'll be honest brad that was a bit of a uh a bit of a setup because we've learned a little bit about you i've done some digging into who you are what you write some of your youtube videos i've watched and and where cam and i like to start the show is we start where I think everybody starts and that's with like the clickbait, the reducing the people to the categories. It's the natural way the brain kind of works. And so I've I've looked at a little bit of your stuff and I came up with the clickbait based on a video that I, I saw, a presentation you gave that was on YouTube. It was like the opening Dude. line. And I wonder if you know what I've pulled it from. It's <laughs> definitely an abstraction and a clickbait rejig to yeah. make it a bit more effective and hit more punchy. people, <laughs> a bit more punchy. And I've gone with, Christians assault the Bible. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> do you,
0: do you know, remember that chestnut? Do you remember? What, do, you remember <laughs> do you remember your original statement that I've pulled and manipulated? I'm going to go with. Uh, I believe the Word of God is infallible, inerrant, and inspired. And when he was 18, he grew a beard. Do you know that one? Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> and so, and so, you're. You were saying then
1: in that in that opener, which followed to you know a great nuanced talk about these things, yeah. but I think the direct quote yes. was like literalism assaults the Bible, and I thought, oh, literalism—only yeah. half the people will understand what yeah. I mean. I better yeah. broaden it to Christians <laughs> yeah. to really hit as many people <laughs> as I can. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's given me enough like insight to like who you are. You're Canadian. Yeah, you're, you're a a qualified professor, an yeah. academic.
2: You're obviously not a literalist. Yeah, you mustn't
1: sit in this camp with a lot of traditional Christians. Yeah. So Cam and I, what we like to do is play a bit of a game. Uh, I don't know what the game's called, but in the game... Yeah, we, we... should really come up <laughs> with a name with it for it. All we do is we hurl uh, assumptions at you, things that we might have thought you might be like, and in a simple yeah. yes or no, you get no nuance. You don't get to explain yourself. You just get to say yes or no, and we get to place you in a little box... To help us. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, good, good. You'll
2: have time for nuance later, but we'll start with Sounds the fun. <laughs> okay, yeah. we, it's we yes it's or fun. no? Yeah. Yes or no? That's it. Yeah. Okay.
1: So I'll start with a real softball here. Yeah. He's Canadian. So he loves hockey. And he's a super yes. fr- super friendly guy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean that's I mean, I've met I was in Canada for a couple of months and boy everyone is really friendly there. <laughs> uh
2: if you criticize Christians, you must be a heretic. Mm, People would definitely. Ha- definitely call you heretic, yeah.
0: People have called me that. Yes. Okay. Am I one? No. Oh, yeah. oh all right all right pushes back against the label don't call me a heretic okay well, well christians who criticize christianity are prophets i suppose but i'm not bad either so yeah right everyone. oh okay so yeah. quick one not a prophet either yeah. what are you where do i put him Yeah. yeah yeah <laughs>
1: okay <laughs> well then if you're criticizing christians you mustn't be a christian that's a long pause correct Oh wow! I didn't expect a hit on that one. That was a a well thought out pause. That was
2: a very considered answer. That one.
1: Okay, so he's throwing stones from outside the glass house, it would seem.
2: (laughs) Okay, so you're using the Bible to make it say what you think is easy and popular, um, and what pleases you. Like you're you're reading into the Bible what you want to get out of it.
0: What about it? Do I do that, or do I think that's a good idea? No, no. no. <laughs> well, both. We think you do it.
2: Yeah, we're, we're accusing you of doing that.
0: Yeah, uh, No, I don't do that. You're at least
1: letting society shape and change what Christianity and the Bible is. You're letting society do that and you're not letting the Bible be what it, the Bible is. Nope. No. Nope. Okay. okay. I feel like someone would have leveled that one. So, <laughs> yeah. that, that might help there. Like, yeah.
2: So, you, you're the dean of a progressive university. Yeah. So, you're like obviously into political correctness. Yeah,
1: like this Jordan Peterson, you're attacking the Jordan Petersons of the world, like this yeah. whole debacle in America where these stupid progressive... Uh,
2: Getting deplatformed. Deplatforming
1: and all that kind of stuff. You must be like into that. Nope. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll let Cam explain, I'll let Cam explain this yeah. one. <laughs>
2: okay, so you said that you do a lot of work with AA still. Oh, and yeah. so we're just wondering, are you a recovering alcoholic? No. Oh, oh, right, so no, hardly any. Hardly of those any on <laughs> Hardly any on that one. So
1: that's okay. He, <laughs> he is <laughs> <Twitter> from. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> 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 take it. a sip from. <laughs> it did look like an alcoholic <laughs> beverage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what we do. We make assumptions. That's that what come, we all do. We've all done it, but we did something different. Rather than think them and walk away into our echo chamber.
2: And, we, and talk to each other amongst ourselves. Like, yeah. Brad is Oh no, yeah, guy. He's definitely alcoholic, yeah, yeah. all that kind definitely of stuff. Definitely heretic.
1: Yeah. We've put them to Brad. He said, no, no, yes, yes, yes. So the only place that that can lead is into a conversation where there's nuance and understanding. Yeah. So let's let's move into that now. So we'll, we'll turn that it over. fun. <laughs> oh, well, we can keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll turn it over to you now. And... The, the the clickbait we're starting with, but we can move from that into what you think leads to this and leads yeah, out of it, yeah. um, but Christians assaulting the Bible, and the original quote was, like, literalism assaults the Bible. Um do you want to expand on that idea and add in the nuance yeah. and necessary things? And you can take this time to clarify any of the above
0: accusations as well. Wherever you want to go, <laughs> yeah, you can just, go Yeah, you've there.
2: got a blank slate to, to talk now.
0: Yeah, we, we should take them one at a time briefly at least, right? Okay, we can do <laughs> yeah. that. Canadian, are you super friendly? Uh, yeah, well, um, that needs nuancing because uh, sometimes we're just passive aggressive. Oh, right. And yeah. Oh! And... and Yeah, and you're picking up smugness, not, you know. (laughs) I'm really glad we went into this. (laughs) Clickbait, Canadians are smug. Yeah, smug, passive, aggressive. (laughs) It's true. I mean, living next to America, we overdefine ourselves by not being American, right? It's similar to how New Zealand feels about Australia, actually, you know. So, um, yeah, so to attacking the Bible, yeah, so there is in the, Um, one of my expertise, I did postdoctoral studies on early church fathers and how they interpreted the Bible. So the early church gathered the Bible and gave us the tradition, including the deity of Christ or the Trinity, um, who actually told us what would be in the Bible. They also knew how to interpret it.
1: Was that the canonization of the Bible as well
0: included in those early fathers? Yeah, that's okay, right. right. So the folks that canonized the Bible taught us that literalizing the Bible makes God into an idol and it's blasphemous. And so they mm. learned they learned what I call the Emmaus way of reading the Bible, where on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, all of the law, the prophets, and the whole scriptures point to me. And if you're not reading it that way, if you're literalizing it, it's... Um, it's a very shallow way of reading it, but also you end up throwing God under the bus. And so what happens is you've got the secular um, university props who will come in and they'll just show their students what the Bible says, and they'll read it literally in order, to, in order to get the kids to throw the Bible out. What I'm all about is I love the scriptures, and I think the way to retrieve them for people is to read the whole Bible as gospel pointing to Jesus, because that's how the guys who canonized it taught us to do it. So literalism's a modernist heresy. Um, can you can you unpack that for me?
1: I actually like the leveling of heresy back the other direction. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Can you talk about what literalizing is? Like, yeah. where do we see it? Uh, how does it happen? What what and, is and,
2: it? And what are the what are the side effects of yeah doing that? Like, what's what's the problem with it?
0: Okay, so typically. Okay, this is radical uh, reductionism, so we've got to be careful. But uh, an example of literalism would be um, when you read, uh, let's say you'd read an Old Testament historical text um, without reference to Christ, and then you apply it directly to your life as if it was for you, and so an example of that is in England, Oliver Cromwell under the, uh, was a Puritan. Puritans are not quaint. Puritans were about, um, uh, what do you call the ethnic cleansing of... of, of right. They, that's what they were purifying. They wanted All to right. cleanse people. the land of Catholics, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, wow, and yeah. so the way he did it is he'd go to the book of Joshua, <clears throat> where God is commanding them to go wipe out people and like literally slaughter them. And Cromwell says, "I'm the new Joshua, so oh, this Cromwell. literal sense of the text now applies to me, and I'm going to go live it in a way that is, is destructive." Um, a spiritual way of reading that text would always point to Christ. Where is Christ in the Book of Joshua? Is he on in the blood on Joshua's sword? <laughs> you know, is he in Joshua's arm swinging the sword? No, he's in Rahab, who becomes part of Rahab the harlot who becomes part of Jesus' genealogy. And it's so you're looking at how these Old Testament texts about victory or defeat, about injustice or whatever, that they're all prefiguring um, the point of the story, which will ultimately be revealed in Christ. So it's all pointing to him. At least that's what Jesus thought. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn, I'm going to do the best I can to learn how to interpret it the way Jesus did. But literalists read it apart from the gospel. And so it becomes a dead letter or what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 3, a ministry of condemnation. But when you read it spiritually, not as letter, not as literalist, um, you end up seeing the gospel everywhere. And, and that's how these old first, you know, the first, second, third... 4th century preachers all read it that way. So I'm trying to retrieve that because otherwise we end up tossing out the Bible as as really hate literature. Yes, hate literature. okay, right. so
2: can I, I'll just sort of give back what I've picked up and you just yep. tell me if we're on the right track. So you're saying sure. that the, the, the people who are canonizing the Bible, they believed that you shouldn't read this text in a literal way. Form of like how it's written, you shouldn't take that on board as literally. It should go like place through ourselves
1: this. into it, going yeah. oh, "I'm Joshua," or "Yeah, because we that's are unhealthy. the Israelites." Yeah,
2: that's unhealthy. We have to read everything in the Bible through the lens of Jesus, as you said, the Emmaus reading, I think it was. Um, and that if if you don't do that, you you create, I guess, what the clickbait says, a weapon out of the Bible. Is that pretty? That's accurate? exactly
0: right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very
1: can good. I can I um, get a bit of a definition here? You're using um, the Christ and then Jesus as like two separate things. I'm sure many people like myself, growing up with like Christ being a synonym for Jesus, or yeah. as Richard Raw puts it, Christ being Jesus's last name. Yeah. How What? What do you mean do you when it? when you're using the word Christ in, in as different to Jesus?
0: Yeah, well so first of all I want to say I love Richard Rohr. I know him a bit and he's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I just I just wish I were like him. Um, <laughs> okay. I think
2: everybody that knows Richard Rohr yeah, is, believes this. He's same. so
0: amazing. Um that said, whereas he distinguishes Jesus and the Christ, I would not. That's one okay. place where I, I stick with 1 John there very uh, and so when I use Jesus and Christ, I am I am speaking about the same person. Right. And and that Jesus is the Christ in First John. And I'm going with that. And I, I believe that, you know, when, when Richard is distinguishing them, um, he, he is he's using Jesus to talk about the historical Jesus of Nazareth who walked around the world. Right. And he's using Christ, he's using Christ to talk about the spirit of God that encompasses the whole cosmos okay. uh, and fills it with himself, and that I meet in you. Well, I'm saying, yeah, I agree with both of that. I just think there, um, the early church taught that they that that those two natures were were indivisible in the one right. person. Okay. I always so Jesus Christ, okay. I do use it. I um I I kind of use it like Richard in the sense that I may emphasize his humanity okay, with not. Jesus and his deity with Christ, but again, it's one person indivisible. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Helpful. So that yeah. so
1: Christ and Jesus Christ, as you're saying, uh, yeah. indivisible. Yeah. Is
2: this this bigger? But Jesus, Jesus emphasizes the human, and Christ emphasizes the divine. Yeah. Is the one picking up. And yeah, but I Christ... wouldn't separate them. Yeah. yeah wouldn't yeah. separate. It's, them.
0: It's, it, let me blow your mind. I I might not blow your mind. I'll no, you, can, though. you try You <laughs> try. It is the cosmic Christ in Mary's womb. And it is Jesus of Nazareth who created all things in whose image you were created. Right. And you're like, what? And it's because Jesus of Nazareth said before Abraham was I am. He is identifying himself as the Christ. Right. So that's kinda what I do.
1: And so and so Christ is like that, is like the God of the Jesus half. Is that one yep. way simplified way of putting yeah. it? <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay.
1: All right, cool, cool, cool. All right. Um, all right, so as then you're talking about... Um,
0: and like, I said I wasn't a Christian. I should clarify yeah, that. Yes, that's yes. actually a good point, you yeah. You should definitely clarify this. Because there was this. a long pause. <laughs> because you sound a lot <laughs> like a Christian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely identify with the Jesus story, and I would love to follow the Jesus way. Um, Christian seems a little bit narrow to me in terms okay. of who's included. And yeah. so probably, in fact, Christian should be an adjective. And so I think what you should do is ask my neighbors if I'm a Christian. Okay. That's not for me to claim. Okay. If my, if my neighbors don't see me following the Jesus way very well, um, they, I would hope they'd either say I'm not a Christian or, or sadly they would have misunderstood what a Christian is. Cause in North America right now, People quite like Jesus, but they hate Christians. And I'm like, okay, what happened there? Right. So mm-hmm. yeah. um, I, I I definitely do identify with the Jesus story and I attend I attend an Orthodox congregation, Eastern yeah. Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in that sense, okay, I'm Christian, but you know. Okay, that's a bit uh, that's it's actually, us Demi, I think.
2: Yeah, so us I'd actually, them, right. I'd like to you mention there the Eastern Orthodox Church. There, maybe there's a few listeners that don't know what that is. Can you sort of, um, maybe as a result of like touch on the what it is, but sort of walk us through how you got to the Orthodox Church, like how, mm. like tell us your journey, like what's your educational background, all those sorts of things.
0: Sure, I'll try to keep it to the elevator version, but it could be a a very tall building. Yeah, we're
2: going to the top (laughs) of the Barj Khalifa in in Dubai, so you've got a bit of time.
0: That's right. So first of all, what is the East Orthodox Church? Um, And this is why I push back against the claim, the charge of heresy by people who are modernists, as if they know what that even means. Um, The early church um, established across the... Mediterranean world uh, began as a largely a Greek, a Greek-speaking phenomenon, including the New Testament, right? And so we would have called this one big church movement, this Christian movement. We would have called it, um, well, they called it the one holy Apost- one Catholic holy apostolic church, where Catholic didn't mean Roman Catholic; it meant universal. universal yeah. and it, it was, was also like... orthodox. Yeah, and it was Orthodox in the sense that these were the people who established the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And and so that defines Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy are those who are baptized into and believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten begotten of the Father before. you know. So the creed, they were baptized into this creed that they identified with the faith once delivered. If you did that, you were Catholic and you were Orthodox. Later, um, in the Western world, uh, the the Catholic, what we call now Roman Catholic, but also where the Protestants came from, was Latin speaking, and in the East, it was Greek speaking and Syriac and some of these things. So you get a you get a language divide, a cultural divide, and eventually you you get a schism where the the two the East and the West split over some. They say it's theological. I think it was political. But that's like a thousand years in. Yeah, yeah. So when I say Eastern Orthodox, I say um, that there is still a a modern version of that early Eastern Greek-speaking kind of orthodoxy that stewards the early church fathers and their writings and worships with the same liturgy they developed in the 4th century. And spread up into Russia and and like all of Eastern Europe, down into Egypt, across all the way to India, and so. um, All right, so that's what it is, Mm -hmm. and and um, I will distinguish it in this way theologically. In the West, they primarily, both the Catholics and the Protestants, primarily treated salvation using a courtroom metaphor, Mm -hmm. where God is a, a judge, sin is law breaking. The enemy mm-hmm. is your is the um, prosecuting eternity. Jesus, Jesus is the is the advocate, but it's all courtroom. So even justification yeah. is a not guilty plea. Right. In the east, it's totally different. Their metaphor is a hospital where sin is much worse than law breaking. Sin is a fatal disease that kills us, uh-huh. and you can't punish that out of somebody. So what you oh. need is a great physician who will heal you. Right, and so he, and so the church then becomes a kind of hospital where we bring broken people. And that's why it really connects well with 12-step with 12, 12 recovery, uh-huh. where even, let's say, even in Sex Addicts Anonymous, they would say, your addiction is not is not a moral feeling. It's a, it's a disease. And it's healed through surrender to the care of a loving God. Right. This begins why I started my journey from a young Baptist, then a Mennonite, and a charismatic uh, to finally... Um, and all of those, I appreciate, by the way, and I still have connections. I'm welcome yeah. there. I preach there, yeah. but um, where I need my spiritual food, a uh, harbor, so to speak, is the Orthodox Eastern Orthodox world, which, by the way, has 30, 350 million members. It's large, right. yeah. um, and so what they say is this: God is love. Period. God is love plus nothing. His very nature is love, and anything we also say say else we say about God. Is a facet of that one diamond or nature. Right. So we would never say he's love, but he's also just. Yeah, well, that, okay. that sets justice against love. We'd say, okay. no, he's just love. He's not holy, he's not love, but also holy, as if there's an unho- unloving holiness. Right. It's, he's holy love, just love, merciful love. Even, yeah. even if we're gonna talk about him as angry, it's a metaphor really for God's opposition from love toward anything in us that is not of love's kind so um so that's that really drew me to them because even the cross then um is not about god punishing his son instead of you that's still Mm -hmm. that's still all about punishment that doesn't and, and that that's an invention of the 16th century so i would when I'm told I'm a heretic by people who got their theology from somebody five hundred years ago, I'm like, You're not traditional. I'm yeah. traditional. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're a heretic. <laughs> Tradition- yeah, and, and so and and by the way, heretic wasn't used as a pejorative. It was just saying you've made a mistake on something, you've departed right. from the apostles' creed. Right. And okay. so, when you split the Trinity up by having God punish His Son, the Father punish His Son, oh, oh you've made a mistake.
1: That and splits yeah. the
0: Trinity because yeah. it's,
1: suddenly within yeah. the Trinity, God is punishing. Okay, it yeah. splits it apart. Yeah. The act yeah. of punishing has drawn a a, thing, a divide.
0: Yeah. Right. So here's a yes or no question. There's we worship one God. <laughs> it's like, right. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who subsists, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, but it's one God, and all the operations of that God in this world are undivided. Right. He's yeah. never set against himself. You can't ah. So you'd either, in, in what I, I grew up defending penal substitution, I did my master's thesis, 185-page book, defending it. Wow. And now I've, re- I've renounced it because I saw how it splits the Trinity or it splits Jesus into well oh, I'd wow. like to
1: Are I'd like know? to explore that like idea with you because I'm hearing a very interesting journey yeah. from one heavily Protestant penal atonement I like I don't know if you were a pastor in that in that faith but if you yeah. could lead us through perhaps it might be you know it might take a while but that's okay um, perhaps what led you into that like did you grow up Protestant Christian yeah and then what was the idea that began to unravel that that led yeah, you on. Yeah, it's
2: like after you you got your, you got did your doctorate, you had a thesis, 185-page thesis on penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. And then what, what, what changed? What How
1: changed? did that break? Yeah, walk <laughs> us through that, int- sounding like a very interesting journey. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, just a fact check there. So I did my MA when I was a young Calvinist. My PhD I got later after I was already being mentored in this by a, a, an archbishop monk from the East Orthodox Church. So... What happened was, you know, I started, when I moved, I was with the Baptist 20 years, and then I went to a very conservative college that promoted penal substitution, and that's where I wrote my paper.
1: Did you grow up Protestant? Like, were yeah. your parents Protestant? And so you were kind of born into this faith, penal atonement. What, what kind of Protestantism was it?
0: Yeah, Baptist. But, and it was totally, totally, um, uh, not just an atonement theory. We were taught that is the gospel. Your sin, God, can't forgive you he ha- without punishing. So he can either punish you in hell or in Jesus. So Choose when they you.
1: said, we need to go share the gospel, and when Baptists say it, and I'm sure they still, I guess, say it to this day, a Baptist would say, share the gospel. You go, well, what are you talking about? Well, you're a sinner. Jesus died for you, but you can be saved. That was the gospel.
0: Yes. Jesus will save you from his angry dad. Yes. So, yeah. And you
1: were in this for how long? And then you became a pastor.
0: Yeah. So I grew up and then I became a pastor when I was about, I don't know, 24. And, um, but when I first became a pastor, it was with the Mennonites who believe in nonviolence. And I realized that among them, some of them believed in nonviolent atonement. In other words, that the cross was not about God's violence. It was about our violence being unmasked and that God's response to our violence was forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So God is not responding with wrath. First John says that the cross is a revelation of God's love. And so we see that love uh, expressed and embodied in the forgiveness of his son for all people. So that got me thinking, you know, as a young Mennonite. But also I was connecting with the Vineyard Church and learning learning contemplative prayer and, and and um, so as I'm studying through this on the theological end, I had an encounter with God. I, I'm saying this in retrospect because I wouldn't presume that until after the fact when I tested it thoroughly with many my community. But in retrospect, I believe the Lord spoke to me one day and just said, stop telling people I was punishing my son. That's not what was happening. And that was the tone. And I'm like, what? I've defended this as the gospel my whole life. What are you talking about? So that started me on the uh, um, back to the Bible, going back in and double-checking every scripture that I had used. And I'll mention, too, I, in my thesis, I would have used Isaiah 53 to defend penal substitution. Now with this in my head, I go to the text, and what does it say? You will think that he was stricken by God. But it was your sins he bore. <laughs> Wait a minute. It's it's just, the hint is, you'll think he God did this, was punishing him, but he didn't. I'm like, what? Uh, the other one is Psalm 22, where Christ, Christ quotes it when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's like, oh, see, God turns his back on his son. He can't look on sin because Jesus has sinned. So apparently he's less than God now, by the way, heresy. But um, if you keep reading if you keep reading in in psalm 22 i did a whole chapter on it in my thesis how did i not see this i get to verse 24 and he says he heard my cry for help he has not turned his face from me <laughs> i'm like so in other words my god my god why have you, fors- have, have, have you forsaken me was not a uh, an ontological yeah. This you know, it's not a description of reality. Yeah. It was a cry for help. That's what yeah. it says. It's a cry for help and yeah. God heard it. Yeah. And um and he did not turn his face from me. So his yeah. fa so this makes sense then of John the night that he's, Jesus is arrested and John he says um, you're going to think I'm alone, but I'm not alone. My father is always with me. Okay. And wow. so
1: yeah. you you did your you became a pastor and then did your thesis and you were in like entrenched in this penal atonement uh way of thinking when 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 you say god spoke to you was that like what was that and was that what began to shift everything that began to make you go
0: back to the scriptures oh, and go already. something's not right or yeah. what was that it was all it was all concurrent. So we had this these alternative voices from the Mennonites that I'm hearing. Um, then I, but I'm also having, I and I would add to it. I was ex- we were doing a lot of inner healing work at the time with people who had been abused. And when we would encounter Christ in that in those kind of venues, He was never ever vengeful, not even of the perpetrators. And it was about. It was always about we are going to make this right through radical forgiveness and you will be healed, you know. And I'm like, okay, so then what's the cross about, right? And so, um, yeah, so when I, uh, as all of this is churning, that's mm. also when I, I met Archbishop Lazar, this, this old monk, and I'm telling him about it, <laughs> and and I'm saying, look, I had this experience with God where I hear this. I've had this experience with the Mennonites where I'm hearing this, and I'm and I'm and now I've gone to the scriptures and I'm starting to see stuff. and And he's like, "Hang on a second. Now you got to understand. This guy looks like Gandalf, <laughs> 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 and he and so he's got the long beard and the hook nose, and he, he's you know the long index finger. And he yeah. says, he says, "Let me get this straight. You believed." that God could not forgive sin, that he had to satisfy his own wrath through the violent torture and death of his own son. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much what we believe. And he said, I see your problem. You worship Molech. That's the God who required uh, propitiation by offering your firstborn through the fire to him. And that was the other thing. And you believe... That if you don't believe this, that the father Jesus revealed will put you in a lake of fire forever and ever. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, we kind of believe that. And he's like, wow, yeah, you worship Molech. And what happened was psychologically was powerful. I felt relief. All right. I said, you mean I don't have to believe that? And he said, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you were required not to. <laughs> so... Um, uh wow a thousand pounds because what happened is i could turn my conscience back on again yeah. how how can how can you come to that kind of belief without turning your conscience off somehow that that so um so that was the beginning of that was 17 years ago that i had that conversation or maybe 18 years ago now and and i've spent the rest of the time working on then i i continued pastoring then i did my phd work then i i did Uh, scholarship in the early church fathers to try to bring me up to speed. And I'm still just feel like a baby in it because we, there's a lot of unlearning to do.
1: And so it's interesting. I'm hearing this, like that relief that you speak about when, when um, the monk said you worship Molech. Now is Molech come from what tradition and what uh, religion belief structure? Uh,
0: Molech. Yeah. Molech was one of the um, Canaanite gods that the, When in Jeremiah, the people, the reason Babylon comes to destroy Jerusalem is because Jerusalem had turned their backs on God Mm -hmm. and they were sacrificing their own children on the altars of Molech down in Gehenna. Gehenna, which is where we get the word hell from. It's the valley south of Jerusalem. It's not just a garbage dump. It It was the place where they were sacrificing their children in fire. To appease that wrath. Maybe I'm
1: making a link that isn't there, so correct me if I'm wrong, but when you you say at the top of the show, literalism that is the reading of yourself from like directly from like say Old Testament stories and putting yourself in there. Is that the connection there then if, of a form of literalism and literalist reading of the Bible that then pulls Molech and Gehenna into this newer uh, reading of the Bible that gives us penal atonement theory? Is, is there a connection there or maybe not?
0: Um, there are some connections. Yeah. Here's the weird thing about it. If you took it literally, it, you would say it's a valley. <laughs> that hell, oh, hell is okay. a valley, right? Yes. But what they've done is, um, and this happens. This happens actually between the two testaments, where um, when Jeremiah talks about Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom, it's it's a it's symbolic of the destruction of Jerusalem. Between the testaments, in books like Enoch and so on, uh, became popular to then think of that as a after an afterlife punishment. Um, and then we come to Jesus' time and we're like, okay, is Jesus following Jeremiah or is he following Enoch when he talks about Gehenna? And then ultimately the, the early church, they at least um, in the East for sure, they would have said this, that uh, yes, Gehenna prefigures the fire of God's judgment, but the fire is God himself and that the fire is love and that it's a cleansing fire and a restorative judgment. And so so that's it's not enough to read it spiritually and then turn it into this horrible thing. We've got to read it as gospel. Where's the gospel in this? How does, so we don't visit those without Jesus as our rabbi?
1: What do you think when you talk about this relief that you had? What do you think the unhelpful elements of this perspective, of penal atonement and an angry God punishing his son. What do you think was unhelpful and helpful about that worldview that you moved from into something else?
0: Um, what was helpful and unhelpful? So let's start with helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, took, it took Jesus, it took sin seriously. That sin, whatever sin is, uh, has done incredible harm to our world, to our relationships, to ourselves. Um, it took Jesus seriously in the sense that the thing that is going to repair this harm is Christ and not some, you know, there's not, he's the solution to it. Um, It took the cross very seriously. And though I think it was a dramatic misunderstanding of what was happening there, it kept the cross in view and it caused us to go there. And we had a lot of very good hymns. About, about the cross and about how when I go to the cross, I'm set free and I'm cleansed. And, I'm, and I think I believe all of that is really true. Mm. Um, it's just that what's cleansing us is love, not punishment. And mm. so what I found was that the, the unhelpful side of it was this feeling that God's kind of a monster that his son needs to save you from. And there's people who I, I met so many people during inner healing who could not relate to God the Father partly because of their own father issues and partly because the father they'd heard about who would torture his own son is kind of a bastard, yeah. you know? And so they were turning from God because of that version of the gospel. Right. Um, so I think that's a um, in, the, in the spirit of like being non-dualistic, we still have to say, here's some helpful stuff and here's some unhelpful stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so would you say that
2: um, you've got to this um, like the reason that you're at this point now and, and that you, you call yourself a, a, an Orthodox Christian, um, what other hearing, people yeah, will hopefully call him? Yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Um, was it listening? Like, you, you interacted with this monk, for example, and like, was it the introduction of other voices that mm, led you to the Mennonite voices, or was it something else?
0: Yeah, the, com- the combination of the, of the inner voice of the spirit in tandem with, I would call, it, um, well, here's the language I use, uh, intersubjective. Okay. Um, the, we thought as, as a young evangelical, I thought I had the objective truth, which right. is ridiculous because the moment you are involved, it's subjective. Your ears, yes. your eyes, your heart, your mind, your background makes it subjective. So we need to know we're going to have a subjective reading no matter what. Right. Intersubjective means I I, I was establishing a three-legged stool of um, the scriptures and the spirit and the church. Here's why I say that, because um, the Bible tells us that, you know, that the the, the scriptures uh, light a path for us. Um, Jesus says that it's the spirit of truth who will guide us into all truth and Paul says that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So if I want to know what the truth is, what I do is I I, I need to I need to see where the scriptures and specifically the gospels cuz you don't get to just pick out any bible verse. How does how does sure. how does the the life and teachings and character of Jesus within the scriptures how does it speak to this how does his gospel speak to this whatever topic right and then with the holy spirit it's not just any warm fuzzy feeling inside it's the the thing inside that i can calibrate through loving my enemies cuz my flesh won't counterfeit that
1: oh that's interesting calibrate through loving my enemies yeah talk to me about that
0: yeah well my willingness to forgive comes from a does not come from my flesh so i can't I can't just write off any thought or feeling I have as the Holy Spirit. It will be the thoughts and feelings I have that align with the voice that sends me to go apologize to my wife or to serve somebody. And then, and then so we've got the, the the Bible through a Jesus lens. We've got the Spirit through a forgiveness lens and other a compassion, okay. the fruit of the Spirit. And then, And then the church, but not just any church. And so that's why I've locked into... Who was the church that stewarded the initial gospel? Um, like who gave us the Bible, who canonized it, who gave us the key doctrines of the faith and the creeds. Uh, so so if, I can, if I can line those three things up, then I can say, okay, maybe I'm on track. I would even say it like this. Jesus is our final authority. And the scriptures, the spirit and the church testify to his authority. When they're in agreement on that, I can have some confidence. Some confidence, not certitude. That's not offered here, but enough confidence to step out in faith and say the things I do, say or do the things I do.
2: So what you're describing is like a, a system that you use to engage with your experiences to form like theology i I guess like ideas and practices that help you move towards like a christ or a jesus style life is that fairly accurate would you say that sounds
0: about right i i would only say about that that in that model that theology is not prescriptive it doesn't come from scholars in the corner of a university in their office with their books Theology is sure. descriptive of what we see the spirit doing in the living body of worshiping believers. So I think I'm a great theologian. I, it's not because I'm real smart or I've written a lot of books or anything. I think I'm great because I know, because I've been put in my place. I am welcome. Okay. I am welcome to observe the church and analyze what God is doing in the church and describe it. And so theology comes after the fact as reflective does that make sense? Right. Interesting. So it uses
2: it theology in the way you're describing it is used more as a descriptor as a as opposed to a prescriptive. Which is style. seems
1: exactly flipped to the opposite of how I've yeah. encountered
2: everybody use the word theology. They'll yeah. say, "What is
1: your theology? Like what do you think it should be like?" Yeah. And you're saying it's almost the opposite. Theology yeah. is describing what yeah, it is. Yeah. That's
0: right. And so it this theology is describing the, my findings having put a uh, hypothesis through the, the three-legged stool. So my theology comes yeah. from a study of the scriptures, attentiveness to the spirit and an observation of the body of Christ. As those, th- three, things, as those three things are worked out, then, then we can write something. So we,
2: we spoke to a guy recently um, who was more of a literalist and more of a, an inherentist in his understanding of the Bible. Um, and so he we asked him a few questions and some of the things that we sort of asked him, he was like, well, that's your experience and that doesn't count for anything. So what would you say to that sort of like his experience? like, to Because I'm more familiar with Richard Raw's language about this with his three-legged... Uh, his three is tricycle and experiences like the front wheel for his tricycle. And you have one of your legs of your stool is like essentially experience. Um, and so what does, what do you say to those people? Like, what are they missing out on? Yeah. Um,
0: Well, first of all, they should read the Bible. What is the Bible? The Bible (laughs) is a record, an inspired record of the experiences of the people of God. And it's nothing else. Okay. <laughs> there, yeah. w- what else is going on there? The, the entire book is a book about experiences, experiencing God, right? Second, oh, I, yeah. would, I would really ask very seriously, with compassion and great concern have you not experienced God? Or is this an idea to you? Because if you are training up young people, in an idea, the next idea that's a bit better researched and it feels a little less wrathy, will they're going to lose their faith because their faith isn't in knowing God. Eternal life, eternal life isn't signing off on the creeds that I memorize and pray every day. Eternal life is knowing some a person. What, what, what would marriage be? I... I <laughs> well, how, how do you speak about marriage in non-experiential terms? This is a marriage. The new covenant, the old covenant, was a spousal arrangement with a living person who's in you. To discount that, I, I don't know what that is. That, that's, that's certainly modernism or late scholasticism. But wow, uh, it doesn't sound like somebody who's met Jesus. So talk to me
1: about... You're, when you're saying, do you have an experience with God or do you know God or do you have an experience with Jesus? Talk to me about what the symptoms of that might be. What does that look like if they're like, what are you yeah. talking about? What do you mean? Like, they might Because I can imagine the response would be, no, of course I know God. I like pray yeah. all the time, all this kind of stuff. Read the Bible. It, it doesn't seem yeah. like a self-diagnosable thing. So yeah. is there like some kind of indication to go oh that's what it's like to know God when you use that language because it's a, it's a language used by everybody about completely different things. yeah
0: so well he's already said experience doesn't count so then I guess I would I would probably start checking for what his experience is. I, I might I'm, I was being quite rhetorical there you could like have you not met him? Well my <laughs> assumption is that he has yes. met Christ and I would want to validate the ways he's met Christ. And then I would want to also be very broad in what that can include for people who are wired differently. So for my um, one person, so this person might be pushing back against, let's call it um, emotionalism. I'm like, well, that's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about a living connection that is experienced through inner life of prayer that has fruit that looks like the fruit of the spirit, and it will involve evidence of transformation so for example when I'm doing 12-step recovery work the folks that I work with um, they learn to surrender their lives to the care of a loving God and then they begin praying to that loving God and, and watching for obsessions to lift and behaviors to change and it's very the transformation is very observable and so that's harder for people who haven't gone through such levels of brokenness but what if our brokenness is, is just like a cold heart that doesn't feel much, you know? Well, I'm going to supplement that with bright ideas that fe- make me feel good about my, you know, that I'm smart or something. You know, <laughs> I've gone down that road. I know where it goes. It, and it's painful. To, um, so, yeah, so I want to be expansive in what I mean by experience. I used to use the word encounter. That, like, have you not encountered God? But people thought I meant dramatic encounter, like... <laughs> And so Fleming okay. Rutledge, she's come up with this really great phrase, living connection. And so evangelicals talked about having, I was told I had a personal relationship because I said the prayer and I said, and, and oh I, I, I said a nightly prayer and I, and I read the Bible. Well, that's just me doing two activities. My question was, when does it get to be relational and when does it get to be personal me, me, citing a, a prayer and reading a book is not. That's not. A, that's not personal. That's not relational. But it, it's a good start. It can orient you towards that living connection. And um, I'm happy to say that even as a young child Baptist, I did feel that connection in my when my mom taught me how to pray. I experienced intimacy with Christ in my heart, and I knew it. So. I'm not saying we got to get Pentecostally here. I'm not saying that we have mm-hmm. to get emotional here. I just want to know there's a living connection. And some for some people, that living connection will be quite dramatic and it it, it is not right to to diminish that that kind of form.
1: Do you think that this form of literalism that may have contributed to the picture of an angry God, killing his son to appease everybody. Do you think that can get in the way of someone experiencing that yeah. inner connection you're talking about? Like for yeah. you, did it did it inhibit in some way? You said you had you had some level of that connection, but then you've also moved away from
0: being and you, you a, said that
2: it felt lighter once you once you realized it. Right.
0: That. So yeah. I I so I would have related to Jesus, but the father was the, fa- the father was not love to me. The father was distant and the father was a little bit scary. Um, the father was the one who's willing to slaughter infants. Um, it gets worse when you read the Bible, you know. Uh, if you read it literalistically, yeah. it, it's awful what's in there, you know, in terms of even some of the laws. And you're like, is that the Abba Jesus revealed? Somehow, there was a connection with the relief of knowing that God is not uh, uh, um, being wrathful. wrathful. Hey, yeah. Did you ever see the Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt movie, Seven?
1: No. No.
0: Oh, it's pretty intense. Um, it's, t- it's a serial murderer who's going through the seven deadly sins. And one of the seven deadly sins of Catholicism is wrath. And here I was told that God is wrathful and he needed to satisfy his wrath by punishing his son
2: mm. when it's
0: one of the seven deadly sins. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Well, he's allowed to do it because he's God. So he can kill babies and stuff. Because wrath literally means, here's the definition, violent anger okay. acted it out.
2: Yeah. Okay. It's not
0: just an angry feeling. Yeah. It is you're acting your, on your anger with violence yeah. where violence is defined as doing harm. Yeah. <laughs> so you can so so as long as I thought well Jesus saves me from the wrath of God then I can love Jesus and it's really good news he saved me. Yay, that's good news. Would you like to meet my dad? Mm. <laughs> not so much. O- okay. okay. <laughs> I guess I have to or he'll smite me. It was so <laughs> confusing and then we would read the, the how Jesus saw it in the story of the prodigal son and it did not match. So what was yeah, what was
1: really helpful then with your transition? Like, was it difficult moving from being a pastor in this space into moving out of that into a new tradition that has that has what you're saying has gone back to the roots of those who wrote the Bible, how they wrote it, how they uh, interpreted it, and canonized it, and canonized it. Connect me with that journey of your like your personal journey from this space into um, i'm assuming more of one that has more fruits of transformation personally like you're saying of um knowing god in that sense of of knowing god being like well if you know god there is the evidence of transformation so you use the example of the 12 steps if if they are truly knowing this god then they will witness a transformation talk to me about that journey you've you've been through
0: okay yeah so there was there's two sides to it um here, I'll start with the positive. So the positive side is now I had good news, like really good news, mm-hmm. that what Christ did, he did for all, and what he did was an expression of the Father's heart for all. And so come – so the, there was still an invitation. Um, so come experience the goodness of God. And so we were – the. After 10 years with the Mennonites, we were, my wife and I had co-planted a church called Fresh Wind. And a third of the church were people with disabilities in full-time care. And we had a lot of addicts, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous. And they were experiencing this as good news because, because God was so kind. And there's no, there's no secret thing in the back room. That you have to worry about. There's no secret back there. And um, it's like God sent his son, we killed him, God forgave us and raised him from the dead. And now that means um the love that that love is here for you. Come to the table, right? So and they did, and and so it felt really good to have news that matched the very transformations we were seeing again, the, our theology now was describing the church as a hospital and God is a great physician and sin is a disease. that's being healed in front of our eyes. Right. Um, here's the dark, the, the dark side of that. And it, it goes back to a question. You, the One of your provoking questions about, well, you're just, you're just giving, you're just following society. Right. About what society wants to hear. Well, guess what I found out? Society doesn't want to hear about the love of God. Society wants wrath. In fact, my flesh wants wrath. I'm not a pacifist by nature. I'm a violent son of a bitch. And for me, the Jesus way of peace is is not appealing at all. I want to kill people. And he's saying, I need to forgive them. That's actually not very popular, you know. And so, so whereas we thought... Like we've been accused of, well, you're you're emphasizing the love of God because that's what the world does. Do they? Is that your, really your experience? I, I found the world quite hostile to love, including the progressive side, by the way. We went from purity culture in the, among the conservatives to cancel culture among the progressives. And it's all about retribution. And it's about cutting off any pathway to redemption. And so the gospel challenges both the, the, the right and the left in this and says there's a way for where everyone gets to be at the table, which is a big, really important part of what you guys are doing. You're saying like it is way too easy to other people and just to say, well, I was a progressive, I, I was a conservative and now I'm a progressive. So, so now I have us, them with the conservatives. And even my Calvinist friends, I make sure I have Calvinist friends and military friends and so on. Because, because Jesus calls us all to the table, like Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, who are like mortal enemies. So I, I, I really admire what you're doing in terms of say, challenging it, challenging even progressives. To, to not be excluding the other, which just tells, that that's like switching sides without switching spirits. You're still a fundamentalist then. So I find that very, very challenging to myself. And, but I, I kind of, I don't mind undergoing that challenge and feeling the sting of it. Which, so I've written this book, A More Christ-like Way. And in it, I talk about the Jesus way, but it's a lot of it is a confessional. Like uh, about how I have failed in the Jesus way, that I don't like the Jesus way, but I'm 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 trying to orient to the Jesus way, and and here's why I am, and it's because uh, of experiences I've had. That so anyway, um, that's the dark side. So here's what we're discovering now. My wife goes to a church called the Bridge, and they were a big church, and they started preaching um, things like Richard War preaches about the love of God, and guess what? Their church started shrinking. There is a market for wrathful, the wrathful God.
1: When you say the love of God in the sense that like, did they start preaching inclusion of LGBT? Did they start preaching things like that? And they said, this this is what the love of God looks like. And that's what shrinks. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah. And they did that gradually. Like they, they just began with more more generally that God is exactly like Jesus and that God is love and that he's not about punishing you but then they began to be more explicit and it's like yeah he loves the gays and the lesbians and the presbyterians you know mm. <laughs> and so <laughs> um true. and and so suddenly there's like i i i know a guy who's uh, on a worship team in another church and some of the folks from the bridge left there and they went off to this guy's church and they said to the, the my worship leader friend they said uh, yeah, we left the bridge. It was they. They emphasize love all the time. God's still angry here, isn't he? <laughs> and my my friend knew what was up with them, so he's just like, "Yeah, don't worry. God is still angry here." Oh, good. What's that? Wow. Okay. Angry. Um. So we need him. We need him to be angry. Uh, it's just very, very weird. Yeah, but anyway,
2: what what do you think modern penal atonement? Theory holders like people, who... which is,
1: from my experience, most of most Protestant, Protestantism, Christian, yeah, made and popular. probably even
2: a lot of Catholicism as well. Yeah, I'm very unfamiliar with Catholicism. Yeah. Um, what what do they miss out on by having this penal atonement theory that they're um, like you've touched on it already, but I just yeah. want you to sort of make it quite explicit. What what
0: are they missing? What are out they on? missing out on? Um, I would go to Ephesians three. And, and I would talk about that Paul says, I, I kneel before the father um, and, and he's praying that they would ha- be full of the spirit to have supernatural knowledge that, that it surpasses knowledge. Right. Okay. So you cannot, you, you cannot get at this truth with your mind. It has to be a supernatural revelation granted by the father. That His love is higher, wider, longer, and deeper than you can ever know, and in fact, it's, it will surpass everything you asked or imagined. When I, there is something about being connected to penal substitution that limits the height, depth, width, and length of that love. It must. It's part of the system. So, and be, let's be explicit then. Um, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great it is, is love, you know, which we now know you, you can look, you know, we got thirteen point eight billion light years away. His yeah. love is bigger than that, right? Yeah. How about how about wider? Does his love extend only to Christians and those on the inside? Mm. Or does it extend to everyone? And if everyone, for how long? Mm. Well, in the penal substitutionary atonement system, generally, it the opportunity, his mercy, does not endure forever, and his loving kindness is not everlasting. And, in fact, death can separate you from the love of God. Yeah, yeah despite the fact that I've just named three oh. scriptures that deny it. yeah, That's actually, actually, that's, that's makes it very obvious
1: even to me when you say death cannot separate us from the love of God. It went in the very thing of like, if you yeah. don't accept Jesus as your Lord and loving Savior, yeah. you will not be with him, whether you yeah. believe in hell or not. You, that in that transaction is separation yet you've just yeah dropped the, the verse that says you cannot be yeah. separated but then they would call that universalism right yeah and then so that, that was going to be that's my question too wide
2: is, is, is this a universalist? Are you a universalist? Yeah <laughs> uh, like
0: no but okay <laughs> <laughs> let me let me finish a point and then I'll address that because it's really important that I do. Yeah. but just the, how deep does it go in mm-hmm. the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Christ enters Hades and destroys Hades. I've he binds up the strong man and plunders its, his goods. Right. Jesus said he'd do that. Yeah. And so he enters Hades on Holy Saturday. The Catholics believe this too. And, 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 uh, but in the Orthodox world, we would say he's trampled down death by death. So by dying, he enters death, rescues those who'd perished, and brings them up with himself according to Ephesians. And and so how deep did he go? Right to the bottom. So in our icons of the resurrection, Christ has gone down and he finds Adam and Eve. Wow. He goes all the way to the bottom and, and he draws them up. And they represent humanity. He's raised yeah. up humanity. Yeah. So who is it that whose knees will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord in Philippians 2? Everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Okay, I think he's... (laughs) So then, is that universalism? I don't like that word, and here's why. Mm -hmm. Most universalists, I'll call them pop universalists, but that does represent most universalists. um, Do not believe sin matters, Jesus matters, the cross matters, judgment will happen, or a response needs to occur. Okay. I believe all of those five things are essential to the gospel. But let's start. take a running start at it. Sin matters. It, it's ruined the world. Uh, Christ matters. He's the solution. The cross matters because that's the means he used to overcome sin. And there is a final judgment where we all have to face the meaning of our lives. And, and a response matters. Here's the question now does the New Testament foresee everyone making that response? Mm. I think I see about 32 passages that indicate that Paul and Jesus and others in the New Testament foresee a time when God will be all in all, when every eye will see him, when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess. Um, Some would call that universalism. But I just said, I don't like that word because yeah. it it's, misses those right. five important sure. points. Yeah, so no. I call it ultimate redemption. Mm-hmm. In the early church, they called it apocatastasis. Mm-hmm. That meant the restoration of all things and all people. Okay. And that's from Acts chapter 3. Heaven okay. must hold the Son of God till he restores all things. And when he, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he brings every, every enemy under his feet and then he especially finally death itself mm-hmm. then he'll hand the kingdom over to god his father and god will be all in all yeah so i'm optimistic in that sense i do i do think there's grounds for ultimate redemption but i i think the follow-up question usually is then why share the gospel it's like because jesus is the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me and people are already in hell yeah like look around all watch right. the hell news is them. here
1: heaven yes. can be
2: here hell, hell is here yeah,
0: and it's a and it's a psychological. It's a term we would use the term alienation. We are experiencing deep alienation from one another, from ourselves, from the earth, and God wants to restore and repair that. So no, I'm mean, not a universalist, but I I I believe in ultimate redemption through Christ.
1: Yeah, I like the deliberate distinctions because yeah. it's. Words are loaded with yeah. meanings when people put them to two people, and it's it's often. I think we were talking to Liz a couple of weeks ago. I haven't released that podcast yet, and she was saying often, often words and categories are just lazy ways, like labels, are lazy ways of just categorizing people. What do you yeah. believe? Well, let's categorize you yeah. and determine whether I should listen or not based yeah. on that category, right?
0: And if you, yeah, and universalist is is like the worst one I could think of, probably because it's like. I you're wrong because you're a universalist. Yeah. I did. So I use another I use that other phrase so that I at least get to say what I ex- what I mean, right? But it's so dismissive.
1: Probably only touched the surface of the many elements that have that have created the angry god that a lot of protestantism would say, no no, we don't god isn't angry. Um but there's this maybe literalism has contributed to it where people have pulled in this angry God that you're saying the world and, and society in general really requires and wants this representation of an angry God, whether it's a weapon to use and divide and, yeah. and say who's in and who's out. But you're also using a lot of very traditional, and you've said it a lot before, I'm not new. This isn't new thinking. You're yeah. saying like this is old Orthodox. It's like... yeah you can't be a, a heretic to like this modern sense. You're kind of trying to look before that and you're using very traditional language with Bible verses saying all the same things. So if if I'm in the mind of some people listening, they'll hear you say like those five things are important, sin, Christ, and the other ones you listed, like those are being central. And then I can hear like even the, what we might in this context call like a modern Protestant saying, yeah, that is important. But then you might also be, uh, they might be challenged by the ideas that are represented saying, well, maybe everybody's included and maybe it isn't a narrow exclusive um, way of living. And I want to draw that to, and and wrap up now with you personally, you've said that Trent, that knowing God, the indicator is transformations and and um, I guess changes, positive changes that occur from that relationship, so to speak, that indicate that's there. Personal experience. What has happened for you even now or recently or in the past that has come from this expansive, inclusive love that you're talking about, this this ultimate redemption that you've come to uh,
0: hope in? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm able to experience other people as God's children who I didn't know that they were. In fact, um, uh, tomorrow I'm going to be doing a, an interview with a dear friend of mine, Safi Kaskas, who is a, he's trans, he's a, a Muslim uh, translator of the Quran. And, um, and he also believes that to be a good Muslim is to follow Jesus. Interesting. Right, because the Quran calls for that. And so we have found a lot of common ground and I'm not a Muslim and he's not a Christian, but we are brothers and we're, we're, we're both Jesus followers, by the way. Um, I've also been able to see Christ in those who don't yet identify with Jesus of Nazareth or his story, because Christ is the light of the world who enlightens everyone who comes into the world. That's John one. And so I see him transforming people in, in, in 12 step recovery who would not yet identify with Christianity, but they're praying every day to the God of their understanding. Well, from a Christian perspective, there is only one God and that, you know, and so when they pray, who hear, who hears them? There's only one God listening and I'm watching him answer them. And, um, I'm, you know, for me, um, I mentioned, I hinted earlier, you know, I've gone from uh, a very violent heart to a heart that is, and and also one that was uh, afraid to look suffering in the face. I would run away Mm -hmm. if I saw suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I'm, I'm growing in empathy and um, I've not arrived, but I also haven't, um, beaten up anyone for a long time so, but, <laughs> cool, <I'll> get there. <laughs> so i'm hearing with
2: this re-understanding of of the cross moving away from penal substitution has allowed you to embrace others is more loving mm. more gracious more humble um you can embrace your suffering mm. more um I, like it sounds to me like i it sounds like i want to do yeah that. it you sounds know, like, like something it sounds very compelling people
0: might want yeah Here's one way of, that I, I see the truth and reality and, and the gospel. I would say it like this. If there is a God, and I say if as a faith statement, because it can ever only be that. Mm. If there is a God, that God is love. And that love looks like something. It has content. It's not just worldly love. It looks like the life, life of Christ. And so if you want to see God, you look at the life of Christ who reveals God as love, and that love comes into clearest focus at the cross. So this is really important for people who've come out of penal substitution. If it's not penal substitution, what is it? Yeah. It is this. The cross is a definitive revelation and a decisive victory. It's a definitive revelation that God is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And it's a decisive victory over fear, darkness, death, and dread. You know, well that's fear, right? Darkness, dread, and yeah. death. Yeah. Um, these things have held us in bondage all our lives and they generate a lot of our dysfunction. So when I come to the cross now, I, I see God there and I see love there. And 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 then there the invitation is If God loves me that much, what would happen in my life if I started to deliberately surrender to that love every day? Hmm. And that's when I see transformation. So I'll give you an example. I have permission to share this. I have a friend right now who has been dying of anorexia. She got down to 66 pounds. Uh, She's in second stage heart failure. She began surrendering... Her her body to Christ before every encounter with food, and even though it's really really hard, um, she's she's now gone from sixty six up to eighty five pounds. She might even live. Wow, that that's about one thing for her. It is mm. surrendering to the care of a loving God when everything in her wants to die, yeah. and it's a it's so it's so hard. It's so hard. Well. Um, But she's—I think she's going to make it—and so that's what um, I—that would be an example of why God is love that looks like Jesus on a cross, revealing love and overcoming all of this um, stuff—is important to me. I am hearing a lot of uh, a loving
1: God matters, and in that story, that's what I'm hearing—a loving God matters. Life and death. Yeah. yeah, Life and, and death. And what? And what we were saying at the top, like literalism assaults the Bible in the sense that if it stops us encountering a loving God, if there's a, a particular reading or yeah. understanding or cultural uh, influence that stops us encounter encountering fully that God that includes loving yeah. LGBT, that includes loving the Muslim, the outsider, the different. Yeah. If it if it doesn't include that, then it's limiting that love of God, and it it just Limits, I guess, or brings some level of hell and dysfunction into our immediate surroundings yeah. as well. If that sounds, like. yeah,
0: I I agree with that. Um, yeah. That's kind of what
1: I'm hearing yeah. hearing there. So Brad, yeah. thanks so much for talking to us. We've definitely got a lot to unpack. Yeah. It, it's definitely evident that he's a bit, uh, his his education levels a little bit higher than mine. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry about all the. Uh, Clarifications of various different things. There's a lot I'd love to unpack. I remember you mentioning, um, and it was it was what drew me to your work as well when you were talking about um, other ways of knowing. I'd yeah. love to one uh, one time have you back and talk to you about. You mentioned just in passing, and I remembered it. You saying there's another way of knowing. Yeah. Um, and I'd be like, oh, what do you mean? That can be a very foreign concept. So it'd be great to yeah. get your thoughts on that another time. Whether you agree or disagree yeah. with Brad and his ideas and the things he's bringing forward, doesn't really
2: matter. Yeah, so that's really the point. I don't
1: really care. <laughs> hopefully, you're understanding and hopefully we could unpack like what has led him there, how yeah. this idea helps him yeah. and how it helps him interact with the world and everyone around him. Yeah. If you have any questions or you want to point us down a rabbit hole, we'll dive right in. Yeah. Send an email to ideasdigest at gmail.com. You can engage with us on Instagram and catch all our live recordings that happens there and interact with us there. If you want to check out Brad's stuff, Brad, give us a rundown on maybe some of the Books you've written and where people can find
0: your work and engage with you. Yeah, mostly I probably look look on Amazon or uh, in Australia you'd also look for Book Depository. I think you go there sometimes. So um, my latest book is actually called In I N, and the subtitle is Incarnation and Inclusion: Abba and Lamb. And the idea is um, that. The higher your view of Christ, actually, the wider you see God's love to be. And so you don't have to ditch Jesus in order to have an all-inclusive God. And um, in fact, so so that one includes a lot of stories about our encounters with God through people who didn't yet know Christ, much like Cornelius in the book of Acts, who, who already knew God before he hears the gospel. So that's one to check out. And I'd also encourage... Um, you know, even though some of this has been complex, I wrote a book, a children's book called Jesus Showed Us. And um, there's two, I have two children's books. Uh, um, Paul Young calls it the best adult retraining book that he's ever written. So that's high praise indeed, right? So Jesus showed us, and what he, what Jesus shows us is that God is love on every page of the book. And um, But if you look for me on Amazon, uh, look under Bradley. That's where you're going to get Bradley Jersak is... They haven't combined Brad and Bradley on that. So there's two entities and uh, that's where you want to look.
2: Thanks a lot for coming on. And,
1: and thanks everyone for joining us live. Uh, you can always join the live recordings and send in a question and guide the discussion that way. Uh, I think I think that's it. So if you like the, sh- the podcast, rate and review, only five stars. Comment yeah. if you're feeling extra special yeah. um, and recommend it to a friend. So yeah. some people are recommending it to a friend. That's that's very nice of them. Yeah, it's, generous. Uh, it's very <laughs> generous. So thanks for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode.